Okay, last week we began the book of Acts and we covered several points. One of them being that, that um, the book of Acts is mainly a historical book. It's, it's not a book that has very much doctrine in it. There is a, a chapter, uh, Acts chapter 15, where there's this, this specific proclamation for the church that, that's given out. But in general, it's a, it's a historical book. Uh, and how we can learn how the early church was forming. And only those passages that we read, that then we read about some, some doctrine coming in the epistles that says that that should be a, a common practice, do we have to hold on to and say that's something that we really ought to be doing. Now, not that we can't do some of the things that were put forth here. That's not to imply that. It's just to imply that, that we can't put that upon ourselves as, as if we're putting doctrine upon us or put it upon others. We can put anything we want upon ourselves. But doctrine is something that we, don't, we, 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 we take on and we say, this is something we ought to be doing, where there, is, there are other things that we can just decide to pick up. So, for example, if you don't want to eat meat, you don't have to eat meat. That is fine. It's when we take that and start putting it on others and suggesting that that's what God wants. Then it becomes a problem. And remember, it is very easy to take the little things that we consider important in life and to say that if you don't do that, it's a sin. And, and let, let me give you an example. Um, and th- this was very common in the, in, in the church, actually, in this country. So, for example, playing cards. Playing cards... 40, 50 years ago, was considered a sin if you played cards, any kind of cards. And now you go and many churches have decks of cards with their logo on the back. So has God changed? No, God hasn't changed. It, it never was a sin. It was, just, it was just a sin in people's own minds and they put it on, upon other people. So there are specific things that are written toward us. But we'll deal with that later. Let's, let's pick up the, from verse 9 in Acts chapter 1. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up, and while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Okay, so this ascension is taking place. And then in verse 12 it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Okay, so here they are, they're on the Mount of Olives, and we specifically know where they were on the Mount of Olives, because actually, back right in, in, in the end of Luke, the end of Luke, it, it actually tells where they were when the ascension took place. It, it says that uh, uh, in verse 50 of Luke chapter 24, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he departed from them and was carried away carried up into heaven. So, here he was on the Mount of Olives, specifically in this small town of Bethany, the town that he really liked to stay stay at. He didn't spend many nights in Jerusalem. He would always go to Bethany. 
And we learn that Bethany is about a Sabbath day's journey away from Jerusalem. A Sabbath day's journey, journey was about three quarters of a mile. So not very far. Uh, so, you know, maybe half the distance across the Rice campus or something was, was the distance. So it's not very far. It's just that to go to the Mount of Olives, to Bethany, anywhere on the Mount of Olives, into the city of Jerusalem, you had to go down into the valley and back up. So it was, it was different than the type of walk walking across campus where it's all flat. It was actually a, a, a more robust walk, but really not that, that far. And so, in the book of Acts, they were actually in this town of Bethany, and interestingly, there's a church called the Church of the Ascension where they say that Jesus actually ascended from, and that can't be right because Jesus ascended from this, this town of Bethany. Um, but it, it's not far. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty close. And it says that that Jesus, while, while he was blessing them, he ascended right up into heaven and they watched him and he was received off into the clouds. And that's why it says that Jesus is going to return. When he returns, it says that he's going to return coming in the clouds. So the same way that he was taken up, received by some clouds and taken off, he will come back, it says, the same way. So as he was going up, these men are looking up And it says, Behold, two men in white clothing were standing beside them. Now, angels always appeared in the Scriptures as men. There were no no female angels' appearances. Whether there are or not female angels, we don't know. But all angels that have appeared in Scripture have always come in the form of men, and often in the form of young men, and also often in in white clothing. Not always in white clothing, but uh, uh, often that way. We don't know specifically that these two men were angels, but it would certainly fit with the angels that were there at, 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 the, uh, at the resurrection, there by the grave. And then in verse 11, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the, the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So in the same way that he's gone, he's going to return. And so here are the disciples. They were all from Galilee. And they were looking up as if Jesus was going to come back right then. I mean, here was the Lord. He had walked on earth for 40 days after the resurrection. And, and uh, now he was taken up. And it's as if they're looking as if he's going to come back right away. And they say, would you quit looking up? Because remember what, what had then been commanded. If you look back in that same chapter in verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but for wait, with the, wait for what the Father had promised. And so, he had commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem. So remember, Bethany, this location is only about three quarters of a mile to go back to Jerusalem, so essentially they're very close. And it's as if they're looking up, and he says, you guys better get to it and get to where Jesus said you ought to be. And so, you know, they needed this encouragement to to get on going. And so in verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now let's look back in verse 8. Jesus said in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. With this command... He tells them that he's about to rescind what he had proclaimed 
to go forth in, in Matthew chapter 12 and 13. And in Matthew chapter 12 and 13, because of the unpardonable sin, remember his, his teaching changed. He spoke in parables, and that's when he started to tell people, don't tell people who healed you. Before that, whenever he healed people, he would say, go to tell what, what great things the Lord has done for you. Go and, t- and speak about these things. After that event, after the unpardonable sin in Matthew 12, starting in Matthew 13, every time he healed a person, he told them, don't tell anybody. Now he's rescinding that command of not to speak. He's saying, you're going to now be my witnesses and start proclaiming this. And so in verse 13, And when they entered into the city and went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So what does he do? He names the eleven apostles. Remember there was a twelve. There was also Judas Iscariot, which is different than Judas the son of James. There were two Judases. Uh, but he names all 11 right here. All 11 of them are named again. Now, they are named in the Gospels, but they're named again right here. These all, with one mind, were continuing, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Okay, so, so if, if you look who's here, there's, there's now, now named, the 11 apostles are there, it also says, uh, along with the women. Now, we know from Luke chapter 8, verse 1, that there were many devout women, verse 1 through 3, many devout women that followed Jesus. We know that there were devout women who went to the grave. We know that Jesus appeared first to Mary, and then he started appearing to others. He appeared to a number of the women on that first morning. So there were a number of women right there with the apostles, working closely with them and praying right there with them. And then it says, along with them the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. This is the last reference to Mary in the foundation of the church. This is it. Now we see some references to, to uh, uh, Mary in the book of Revelation. One who bore this son and, and had to flee and, and, and we, we, we see this, this figurative language there. But this is it. You want to say what was her influence biblically? In the early church, this is all we have biblically. Now, there may be other writings, other things that talk a lot about Mary, but this is all that we have from the Bible of Mary in the early church. This is it, that she was praying alongside with the apostles and the other people there in the other room. And as we're about to see, there were about 120 people in that other room, in in that upper room, and Mary was one of them. This is the last reference to Mary. We don't see her again as having some foundational role in the building of the church. Maybe she did, but we don't see her there in the Bible. Just not there. I mean, just go ahead, get get a concordance and look up Mary. You'll see another Mary talked about later on. But not this Mary. Not Mary, the the mother of Jesus. This is it. This is the last reference to her in in the building up of the church. Just that she was there, along with Jesus' brothers. Jesus had four brothers. And, and uh, uh, two of them, we know one of them, his name was James. He wrote the epistle of James. He was also the one who stood up, James, the brother of the Lord, who stood up in, in uh, Acts chapter 15 and made a proclamation, was very influential in the church. 
uh, and also, and so he wrote the epistle of James, and also uh, Judas, uh, I'm sorry, Judah or Jude, wrote the epistle according to Jude. So the the book before Revelation that was also the one of the brothers of Jesus. So two of the brothers of Jesus that actually had a a a, a, a visible role in the scriptures. The other two brothers do not. But we know that his brothers were there. Jesus had four brothers. We know that his brothers were not believers. They did not believe in his deity prior to the resurrection. After the resurrection occurred, uh, Jesus appeared, we know he appeared to James. Uh, one of his brothers, James, we know he appeared to. And, and uh, uh, because that's noted in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, The four brothers are there, and now in verse 15, At this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary for the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of, one of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. Okay, so they're about to choose another disciple, but there's a couple points I want to talk about before we get to that point. Peter stands up in, in verse 15 in the midst of the brethren. So already Peter has some leadership role here, and we see that through this book. Peter, Peter has a leadership role in the church in Jerusalem. And this is about, what's about to occur actually in, in chapter 2 is, is the birth of the church. So Peter stands up and we know that there's about 120 people there gathered together in the upper room. So it's actually quite a sizable room, 120 people. So it, you know, maybe it's about the size of this room, but it, it can't be a lot smaller than this room. And, and uh, also it says... It, it, that that uh, we don't know for sure which upper room this was, whether it was the upper room where they had the Passover feast. Uh, many believe that this was the, the upper room that, that belonged to Mary, the mother of Mark, the mother of John Mark, who wrote the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, and then he says in verse 16, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who has become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Look at what Peter says. Brethren, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. The Scriptures will be fulfilled. Whatever is written here in this book will be fulfilled. Everything that is written will be fulfilled. This book is absolutely packed with prophecies that have taken place. And there were a lot of people who felt that these prophecies had actually been inserted after the life of Jesus. But then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1930s. 
and they had the writings of the Hebrew Scriptures. All of the books of the Hebrew Scriptures, except Esther, were there in the Dead Sea Scrolls, along with many other documents from, from accountants and things like that. But all of the documents were there. All of the Scriptures were there. And they predate Christ by several hundred years. They predate the life of Jesus. And they're totally accurate with what we have today in our Old Testament Scriptures. So it could not have been inserted after the life of Christ. Those prophecies came true. And if you, and, and if I will get hold of this, that whatever is written in the Scriptures will come to pass, we will have a lot more peaceful lifetime. Let me give you an example. People are wondering, is, is the nation of Israel going to get wiped out? You know, is, is, is Ahmadinejad going to come from Iran and drop some nuclear bombs and wipe that place out? The scriptures are very clear that Israel will come back to that land. Israel was gone from that land for about 2,000 years. No one ever thought that 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 nation would be reborn. And the scriptures prophesied that God said, Can a nation be born in a day? But that is exactly what happened. It was by one vote overnight in, in the United Nations that started that nation again. And people were just shocked. And then on that day, war was declared upon that little country. They had no arms, nothing, and they survived. The Bible is very clear that that nation would return. The Bible is also very clear that the only time they'll ever now leave the land again will be halfway through the tribulation, at the midpoint, when they make an agreement with the Antichrist. There will be a time when they will flee for a very short amount of time across the river, in, in, into the side of the Jordan and up into the mountains. But they will flee from that land only for a very short period of time. No one's going to throw them out of the, that land before that. And then they will return very shortly after the, they, they leave that land. So we know specifically what's going to happen. Now, if Ahmadinejad is going to drop some nuclear bomb, no, say he drops a nuclear bomb on Jerusalem. You can't live anywhere in Israel. In fact, Israel, I think it's, it's, it's with it, its shortest point across is only like 14 miles. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the city of Houston. I mean, that's it. So you drop a nuclear bomb anywhere, the whole thing is gone. We know it's not going to happen. You say, well, you don't know that. I know the Scriptures. And I know what the Scriptures say. And it can bring you great peace. Peter says, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Whatever is written here will be fulfilled. If it hasn't been fulfilled already, many of the prophecies have already been fulfilled. But the ones that haven't been, will be. And so we know how things are going to work out. There's going to be trials, there's going to be tribulations, there's going to be murders, there's going to be deaths, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to take place. But we know globally the things that are going to happen, the kingdoms that will rise and fall. It's hard to put this specifically onto things, but as we look back, we say, ah, there was the fulfillment. We don't know the times of these happening. Sometimes we know the sequence, but we don't know the, the, the precise times that things are going to occur. But what Peter took hold of is, the Scriptures have to be fulfilled. Everything in this book is true. If you would make this book your meditation, it would give you a lot more peaceful life. You know, Billy Graham talks about how early on in his ministry there was all this attack on the Scriptures and people were trying to convince him that the Scriptures are inaccurate in this way and that way. And he came to a point in his life and he said, Lord, I take your word as being true. 
And he calls that the most foundational point in his entire life. Very early on in his ministry, he was a young man. You take this word as true. You make it your meditation and you will be greatly blessed. Peter well knew the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And then he says they had to be fulfilled concerning this man, Judas. And he says that in verse 16, Brethren, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. Judas was one of the twelve apostles. When Jesus sent out the twelve, when Jesus sent out the seventy, when Jesus sent out his apostles to go and to heal the sick, and to raise the dead, to cast out demons, Judas was there. Judas had the power of all the other apostles to do wonders, to do these, these miracles, to see this and also to perform it. He was no different. He was given everything that the other eleven were given. He was given. Yet he rejected it and decided to go another way. You think, how could he have been endowed with all that power and seen all these things happen? Remember, the disciples would come back and they would say that, that even demons are cast out by their command. And Jesus said, well, don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. That, that, uh, uh, but the disciples were actually executing this level of power. And he rejected it. You wonder, how could he have done that? And then I look at my own life. And I look at the lives of people around me. How can, I, how can we see all the great things that God has given us and reject it? And so often we are tempted to take the treasures that we have in Christ and just put them behind us and go another way. Let me give you a specific example, which happens a lot in the church. And this is a warning to you, because you've not been married, but one day you will be. And if you think that your spouse won't face these temptations and you won't, you're wrong. The question is, how will you walk? So many people in the church fall into adultery. So many people. And you look and you say, how could he have done that? His wife is a beautiful woman. He's got a beautiful home. He's got beautiful children. How could he have done that? How could he have rejected his family and gone another way? What takes a man and causes him to just turn from all that he's been given? It's called sin. It's called sin. And the temptations and the desires within people to reject the ways of God are continually before us. And I find myself having to pray, God, before I would ever humiliate my family, and bring your name down by walking in an affair. God, kill me. Father, I would rather die than to do that. I would rather die than to do that to my wife, do that to my children. I have to take strong measures in my own life to do this. You know, I had a, a, a necklace made with a little insignia that I came up with and I had, had this necklace made for my kids and I gave it to them. And, and uh, 
I said, if you are ever tempted to give up your virginity before you are married, I want you to take this necklace and you are obliged then to give it to the person to whom you are going to give your virginity to. You give them this necklace. This has meaning to us as a family. You are to preserve that for your marriage. Take this. You want to throw away your virginity? Give them this gold necklace too. And I had, I had a few pieces of gold jewelry given to me by my, my grandfathers when I was growing up. And I had that melted down and made into this. And I described it to them. I said, this gold means something to me. I was given this as a child by my grandfathers. You give this away to the person that you're going to give your virginity to. And if, on your marriage night, that is the day, I want you to give this then to your spouse. Because this means something. What causes us to give away the precious things we have in God. We don't realize the glory of what we've been given and we toss it away. And we look at Judas and we say, how could he have done that? And then I look at my own life and I know how he could have done that. Because my heart is wicked. My heart is so wicked and I have to take measures and steps to protect my life, to protect my family. The life that God has given me, the position that God has given me. And you do also. The treasures that you have in God, the glory that's been given to you, you must protect for God, for Him and for His glory. And if you've tossed something out, repent before the Lord and say, God, never again. God, protect me. Never again may I do that. What causes a man to reject this and to just throw it out? Everything that they were given, Judas was given. Everything that they were given. What causes a man to toss this out? Will we call ourselves what we need to be called? You know, I was, I was told this week about a, a, a woman whose who's, who's a widow and she's seeing a man she was seeing a man who was married. That man has now divorced his wife and he's seeing this, this widow. And just to see the way things are going, I'm thinking, how could this happen? How could this be? I mean, these people were supposed to know the Lord. How could this man have rejected his wife for this widow who he, she herself was supposed to have known the Lord? What's going on? What causes them to, to throw this out? Does she not realize that she's an adulteress? Does he not realize that he's what the Bible calls an adulterer? Why throw it out? There are things that God puts before us. Don't get rid of it. Don't throw it out. This tradition that you have, that is actually very scriptural of coming to church on Sunday, don't throw this out. So many young people do. They do. They throw it out. They think, oh, it's not that important. When I, when I get married and I have kids, then I'll go. Well, what will happen is you'll marry somebody that is kind of like you that doesn't think church is very important. And then when you have kids, you kind of want to take them, but your spouse won't. 
And your kids will pick up the hypocrisy very quickly. My parents really don't want to go to church. It's not that important to them. And it won't be important to your kids either. The treasures that you have gotten, the things that you have learned, don't toss them out. These are precious things. Hold on to them. Make them a part of your life. And things will grow, go so much better for you. Don't be like Judas and just not value these things. The Bible talks about Esau, how he sold his birthright for a cup of porridge. He sold it. He just sold it because he was hungry and he says, I just want that. And the Bible speaks of him, don't sell that. Don't lose the blessing that God has for you. Remember, these things have tremendous value. Hold on to them. And then it's, it says, it talks about Judas. It says, For he was counted among us, in verse 17, and received in his share of the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. So we had learned about this before when we studied in the Gospels. That actually, it says that Judas acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. If you remember, it was actually the priest that bought the field with the 30 pieces of silver that Judas had gotten for selling out Jesus. The price of of a dead slave. He had taken those 30 pieces of silver, he had thrown them into the temple compound, and he went out and he hanged himself. You were not allowed to take money that was wrongfully gained and use it in the temple management. So they had to do something with it. So they bought a field in his name. So on the books, it was bought in his name, but it was bought by the priests. This is clarified in the Gospels in between this passage. And it was bought in his name, and it became the potter's field where the poor people were, were, were buried. And here it says that he fell headlong and burst open in the middle, and his intestines gushed out. But we know from the book of Luke that from the Gospel according to Luke, that he hanged himself. And it was well established in Mishnaic law that if in the city there was a dead body during the Passover, and he hanged himself then during that that evening, uh, uh, that, that Thursday evening, Friday morning period, they could not have had the Passover sacrifice at 9 a.m., so they had to toss his body out of the city which is the way that they could make the city clean. Any dead body in the city would render the city unclean. Where were they to toss them out? They were to toss them out over the wall into the valley of Hinoam. So there's this valley on on the southern side, and they were to toss him into that valley. The wall is quite high. It's all rocks below. He fell headlong, busts open on the rocks, and his intestines gushed out. The Bible is very clear. He died by hanging. Then... As the Mishnaic law teaches, he had to be thrown over the wall. And so all of this actually does fit. And what happened to him is well known to everyone in Jerusalem in that day. And that's why, so in their own language in verse 19, that field is called Hakaldama. Uh, uh, that is field of blood. So they even had a word for it. So they called that field the field of blood because they knew that Judas had done this with the price of turning in Jesus. Now look in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So, these are two verses out of Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. 
In Psalm 69 and, verse, and Psalm 109 are those two verses. Those are, those are uh, called impregatory psalms or impregatory prayers where the, the psalmist is praying for bad things to happen upon the wicked. She say, oh, the Bible would never do that. Read the Bible. The Bible is very clear about that. And in Psalm 69, uh, uh, David is, is praying these very things. And if you look in Psalm 69, verse 25, Psalm 69, verse 25, it says, May their camp be desolate, and may none dwell in their tents. So you see, he's quoting from this specific psalm, but it's not specifically about Judas. And then if you go to Psalm 109, Psalm 109, verse 8, Psalm 109, verse 8, it says, Let his days be few, let another take his office. So, these entire psalms, if you read them, they're talking about bad people in general. And so, as David is writing these psalms, he's talking about bad people in general. He's not talking specifically about Judas. It's not like the other psalms that we have read, for example, concerning Jesus, that is very specific. And if you look, for example, at Psalm 16, very specific about how the Messiah will die and that he's going to be resurrected. This is not specific. This is called a psalm where it's called literal prophecy. Uh, uh, it, it's called uh, literal prophecy with application. So it's literal with application. So something happened and then it's applied. This is one of the ways that the New Testament church uses our Old Testament scriptures. It says, there is this verse in scripture. It can be applied to this individual. It wasn't specifically about Judas. This is very important to understand this concept. And here's why. It's learning to take the scriptures and apply it to our daily lives. So to take a scripture and to look at the scripture and say, Ah, that scripture, that is a prophecy about me, Jim Tour, living here in Houston. That's the prophecy. I'm probably going to be wrong on that. But the application is very real. That prophecy, that scripture applies to Jim Tour living in Houston. That happens. You see what I mean? One is a prophecy specifically about a certain person. For example, Jesus and his coming and his death on the cross. Another is a prophecy about people in general and then it's applied. It can be applied. So this is called literal prophecy with application. This is actually the, the, the theological term for it. I didn't give it that name. But I've done this, and it works very well. Let me give you an example of one of the, the, the most telling ways in my life that will actually touch you. If you look in Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14. One day God spoke to me from Proverbs chapter 14. And let me give you the occasion, what was happening in Proverbs chap, chapter uh, uh, 14. I was in graduate school. Shereen and I were in... in I was studying graduate school, and, and uh, Shereen and I lived in married student housing. And we used to have students to our home a couple evenings a week. And we would, Shireen would do what she does now. She would cook these beautiful meals. And, and we'd have, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 students in our little apartment in married student housing. And we, it was one bedroom. And, and uh, for my last two years of graduate school, we had a little girl, Umbreen, living with us in that one bedroom apartment. And we had a sofa and a few chairs and a little table and we used to invite in these students in the evening and we'd share with them. 
And Shireen would cook these nice meals. And I remember watching these students eat, that they were just just what students are. They weren't particularly sloppy. They were just student sloppy, just inherent. They didn't mean to. It's just characteristic of the way they were. And I remember watching them eat and chicken bones sliding off their plates as they're laughing onto the couch and things like this. And, and I remember them walking in and there was, I remember one day in particular, snow on the ground and they'd come walking in and they'd just watch them walk in with boots on and they wouldn't even kick the snow off their feet or wipe their feet and come walking in. And they didn't mean to be rude. They just, you know, that's just the way they grew up. They grew up never wiping their feet. And I'm thinking, how can you walk into someone's house with snow all over your feet and not at least, not at least kick the snow off your feet? But, you know, and, and I remember one day as they walked in, snow was falling off their feet. And my daughter, who was crawling at the time, she was you know, less than a year old, was going and eating the snow as it came off their feet. And then one day, a couple days after the students had been there, I saw my daughter sitting on the couch and she was chewing on a chicken bone that she had found back behind the pillow on the couch. And it really started to bother me. And what started to bother me was this, that the house was just getting trashed. And, and uh, um, you know, I... I generally keep things fairly orderly. Now that I've had four kids, I've, I've given up on that at, at home. But if you come to my office, for example, I mean, people are usually amazed. Everything is in its place. Everything has a place, and it's in its place. And, and I just kind of like things neat like that. And um, so this was, was bothering me, and I was thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't have students here anymore. They're trash in the place. They probably really don't care. If they cared, they wouldn't be like this. And, and then I was reading in Proverbs chapter 14. And God began to speak to my heart. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes from the strength of the ox. And I kept reading this verse over and over, and I knew God was speaking to me. And I said, Lord, show me. What is it you're speaking to me? And my eyes kept going back to this verse. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. And God spoke to my heart. He says, you want to have your clean apartment? Don't invite any students in. But if you want to see the work of God in their lives, just remember, it's going to get dirty. Because we're no oxen are the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. You want to see the work of God in their lives? Keep inviting them in. And from that day, I was a graduate student. I was like 23 years old or something. From that day, I said, never will I close my home to the ministry that the Lord has. Never will I close my home to ministry. That verse. I don't think that, that uh, the, 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 the proverb writer here, probably Solomon, wrote this verse with Jim Tour in mind when he was in graduate school. But the application is very clear. And he wrote about oxen. The application is very clear. He wrote about increase. The application is there. This is not unusual, even in the New Testament church. What they are doing in Acts chapter 12, what Peter is doing, he is taking this verse out of these psalms that were written about evil people, and he is applying it very specifically to this man Judas, saying, let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. 
On this basis, Peter stands up and says, another man has to fill Peter's office. This is the application of Scripture to our lives. This is what you and I have to do all the time. We have to be able to take Scripture as we read it. And it cannot just be a bunch of words, oh, ho, hum, mm-hmm. I read the Scriptures today, I'm done. No, it's God, speak to me through this passage. How does this apply to my life? And then, what will happen is, we'll be reading and we go, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I didn't know. God says, I know you didn't know. That's why I put it here before your face. Now repent. Now change your life. My dealings with people all the time, God catches me because of reading the Scriptures. If I didn't have this book, I'd be an absolute tyrant. God takes these Scriptures and He speaks to us and we apply them to our lives. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. He applied this to a situation. You can take a Scripture and apply it to a situation feeding college students in your home. Dealings with co-workers, dealings with a spouse, some principle you learn, you apply it to your children. These are good principles. We don't always apply them rightly. We may take them out of context and apply them where they don't belong. But I would much rather have to deal with that than have to deal with never having any application in my life. You know, once in a while we're going to apply them wrongly. But that's okay, because the flip side, not applying them at all, makes us a lot worse. Remember, you know, people say, calm that guy down, he's just going too far, he's doing too much. And and I'm like, it is much easier to calm the fanatic than it is to raise the dead. I would much rather deal with someone who's excited about the Lord and goes to a little bit too far extreme once in a while than have to get somebody who doesn't do anything to do something. And so go ahead, take the Scripture and apply it to your life. And use it in application, just as Peter did. That's what he's doing here. We're going to see, just in in chapter 2, where he, he does this again. But then he goes on and he applies Scripture immediately in prophecy where it talks about the resurrected Lord. So he does both. Where we can apply Scripture exactly where it was prophesied to happen. And then other places where we apply Scripture just in principle, with application. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and for the applications through scriptures that you give us. Take hold of our lives and take hold of our hearts. And Lord, I pray for these young people that they would not cast the pearls that you have given them before the swine of this world in the sense of throwing away the treasures that you have given them like Judas did. And Lord, I pray that you would give them a heart to take the Word of God and apply it to their lives. In the name of Jesus, Amen.